Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to our New Testament passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is a fascinating uh, passage of Scripture, two verses. And they give these two habits that missionary churches have to have in balance with one another. In verse 8, to be a missionary church, we see that we have to have the habit of seeing the good outside of the church, beyond the church. And then in verse 9, we have to develop of living a very specific Christian way of life that we get from looking within the church. All right, let's take each of these in turn. First, listen again to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So here what we see is that a church has to have a habit of thinking and seeing in a particular way. We have to have the habit of looking all around the world, all around our society, all around our city, and seeing all kinds of virtues and wise living. There is so much good in this world. There is so much good outside of the church. There is so much good in Islam. There is so much good in Buddhism. There is so much good in the Baha'i faith. There is so much good in secularism. There is so much good outside the church, outside of Christianity, in our society, in our public schools, in our government, in our neighborhoods, in, in the lives and, and virtues of, of our non-Christian neighbors and friends. And missionary churches like ours, we develop a habit of seeing and celebrating goodness wherever it's found. Whatever is good, right? Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, think about these things. A missionary church has a capacity for looking outward and seeing these virtues. We believe that the one true God is the wise creator of the world. And his love and his glory are shining out in human lives all over the place. Now, the reason I can say that's what this is talking about is because it comes here in the story. And the story's already been being told, right? All of these pages. So by the time you get here and you read whatever's good, whatever, you've got to let the whole Bible up to that point define what it's talking about. And so, for example, take our Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 23 to 29 that, that Dustin read to us. Listen to it again. Give ear and hear my voice. This is God speaking. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? It's a rhetorical question, but what's the answer? No. 
Does he continually open and harrow the ground? Would that be good farming? No. Where, where, when he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put wheat in rows and barley in its proper place? In other words, he plants dill in a different way than he plants cumin, in a different way than he plants wheat and barley. And then listen to what it says at the end of that. For the farmer is rightly instructed. Now stop reading there. Who taught the farmer that? Who taught, who teaches farmers? You plant wheat like this, but you don't plant cumin like you plant wheat. You plant cumin like this. And, and you sow, and who teaches farmers this stuff? Our farmers around here, who taught them when to plant corn and when to plant wheat or whatever else? Or when, who taught you when to plant tomatoes? Where do we learn this stuff? We learn this stuff from our parents and our grandparents and local farmers, right? Now listen, though. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29 says, the farmer is rightly instructed, God teaches him. God teaches him. Now that's really interesting. Isaiah is making a bold claim here. He's making the claim that anyone who becomes a skillful farmer or excels in agricultural science, he's been taught by his teachers, by the local farmers co-op, right? By the other farmers, but in and behind all of that, it was really God teaching him. Whether the person knows God or not, God is the source of farming knowledge. And he's the teacher of farming knowledge. Now, listen to another book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence. This is the first time in the Bible somebody is filled with God's Spirit. And the filling of God's Spirit gives Bezalel ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft so here same thing but now we're dealing with art right now we find that the very first filled with the spirit person in the bible is an artist and it's the spirit filling him that gives him the capacity, the intelligence, the skill it takes to be a good artist. Here we see that artistic inspiration and skill comes from God. Now, we know where the artists find their skill, right? They find it from their teachers. They find it from mastering the tradition. They find it from art classes, right? But just like with the farmer, God is the one working in the artist co-op. God is the one working in the artistic schools. Now, one more passage, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus was the pagan king of Syria, not a Christian. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. 
God anointed Cyrus. He was not a Christian. He did not convert. He was a pagan king of, of, of Syria, of Persia. He says, I have grasped you by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may be closed. Here we find the same thing. God is at work in a pagan king's life, grabbing him by the hand to lead him. What we're seeing is that in the Bible, every advancement in learning, every good work of art, every scientific discovery, every one of these things is an act of God's grace. It is God opening his book of creation and revealing his truth. What appears to be a discovery to the scientist or the economist or the therapist or the jurist or the farmer or the artist or the engineer, what appears to be a discovery to the university is God teaching the world something through that discovery. Any moment of true insight into any subject, therapy, interior design, fashion, Leadership, any moment of true insight into the world is God teaching somebody something. It's, it's God opening his book of creation and revealing his truth. So, no matter if the discoverer is a Christian or not, when it comes to being a missionary church, it's critical that we learn this lesson. It's critical that this is firmly in our hearts and in our minds because there are two important implications that flow from this. First of all, as it says in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift is from God. All truth is God's truth. All beauty is God's beauty. All goodness is God's goodness. All justice is God's justice. All wisdom is God's wisdom. And so whenever we encounter something that is good or true or beautiful or just, and it's outside the church and inside the church, whenever we encounter something that is right, that is skilled, that is wise, then we have encountered a gift from God. So all good art, all good music, everything well done in a movie, all skillful farming, all true scientific discoveries, all good medical and technological breakthroughs, all of these are good gifts from God. And the genuine joy and the good friendship that exists in the fraternities and sororities at JMU, the creative and technological excellence of video games, every good and true and beautiful thing is a gift from God. Now that's the first implication. The second implication takes us even further down this road. Listen again to our passage from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. See, when he writes that, it's three quarters of the way through the story that I've just gone back and read some parts of to you. So whenever he says, whatever is true, 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Notice, we're called to not only understand that they are gifts from God, that truth is God's truth, we are also called to think about them, to honor them, to appreciate them. To value them because they're gifts from God. And we should never ignore or reject or dishonor any gift from God. To do so is to ignore and dishonor and reject God. Now this is a big deal. So let me, let me just unpack it for just a bit more. In Genesis chapter 1, which um, this is what our stained glass up here represents, right? We have day 1 over there on the far left. We have day 2 over here on the far right. Then day 3 in the middle over there. Day 4 in the middle over here. Day 5, the birds, you see them, and the fish. And day 6 over here. On day 5, birds, right? God creates the swarms of living things in the water, uh, the fish, and the birds in the skies. And then after he does that, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, God stopped and he looks at it and he says what? Does anybody know? It's good. Now, what does that mean? Well, part of what it means is that God is just delighting in his creation. He just delights in it. Just like a fish tank can give you an opportunity to have a sense of wonder and joy and satisfaction God gets to see everything like we see fish tanks. He sees the eagle in flight. And and that gives him pleasure. Psalm 104 verse 31 tells us that the Lord rejoices in all that he has made. He is gratified by by the glowing sunset. And the ocean waves breaking on a rocky coastline. Joy fills the Lord when the cherry tree is in blossom. The the Lord delights in the speed of the leopard. But it's not just creatures. God takes delight in the wit of Kate McKinnon and the athleticism of Patrick Mahomes and the well-crafted novels of Cormac McCarthy, whether these people are Christians or not, when an unbelieving poet makes apt use of the right metaphor, or or when a foul-mouthed Major League Baseball player leaps high into the air and makes a stunning catch, God enjoys the event. It's true that there are only two kinds of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians, but that does not mean that a Christian should only engage in the parts of the world under the adjective Christian. Christians should not listen only to Christian music because there are gifts of beauty outside music made by Christians. It, it, a Christian should not only watch Christian movies. A Christian should not only buy Christian art. God has put his gifts into the hands of believers and non-believers alike. Mozart was a gift, whether he was a believer or not. The Spirit of God is at work within the church 
and outside of the church, giving people wisdom and courage and creativity. In the words of John Calvin, wherever you cast your eye, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of glory. Students, this is a significant part of the reason why you go to school, why you go to college, is because you're pursuing learning in order to find the gifts of the Creator. We must engage with culture in order to gain good and true and beautiful and just insights that come from unbelievers. And, and furthermore, whenever we find them, we must honor them, celebrate them. We must appreciate truth and delight in beauty and honor goodness and love justice and enjoy God's gifts wherever we find them. It is wrong to perceive the world as the domain of the devil and the body as the source of temptation and the culture as the cause of worldliness and education as the root of error. When that is your posture, when that becomes our posture, then we are inclined to dismiss these realms as undeserving of our time, as undeserving of our thoughts, as undeserving of our attention. So that's verse 8. The Lord Jesus shines in all that's fair. But you have to be careful with this, right? You can be, because you can be naive about this. Verse 8 has to be balanced by verse 9. In verse 9, God teaches us that there is such a thing as a distinctively Christian way of life. And you cannot learn it outside of the church. You have to look inside the church, inside the gospel. Listen to Philippians chapter 4 verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. This is Paul. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. You see, while a missionary church must develop the habit of seeing the good outside of the church. And celebrating it. We must not forget that dark and threatening evil is stalking the earth. And simply to say, there's so much good in the world. If that is not balanced with a Christian way of living, we're in danger. That's why these two verses are right next to each other. And isn't it so easy for people to go to one extreme or the other? Some people go so far into, there's so much good in the world, they, they downplay evil and danger and threat. In their engagement with the world. And other people are so fixated on the evil and the danger and the threat outside. That they try to hunker down within the church. And they dishonor God's gifts of goodness and truth and beauty and kindness and justice. That are all around. Philippians chapter 1 says, verse 1. Paul writes this letter to the saints who are in Christ in Philippi. We have to be in Christ and in Harrisonburg. We've got to develop the posture of knowing and seeing God's goodness in every corner of the world. But this cannot detract us from the requirement to live like Christians. To behave distinctively like Christians. Now where do we find this specifically distinctively Christian way of living? He tells us we find it in three places. Where do you learn how to live like a Christian? He says in verse 9, three places. Number one, 
It's in what we have learned, he says. And there, he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about scripture. He's talking about the authorized teaching of the apostles. To be a Christian, you have to be a student of the Bible. This was our collect that we prayed. Oh God, you, no, no, not that one. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may, by patience and comfort of your holy word, embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. To be a Christian, you have to be a student of the Bible. You have to learn it. You have to know its stories better than the stories that you gorge out on, on your Instagram scrolling or TikTok scrolling or Whatever other stories you, you partake of, you need to know this story better. Because whatever story you know best will make you into the person you become. You have to know this story. That's why we do the Advent devotionals. That's why we're constantly calling the church, read the Bible. Let's read the Bible together. That's why we have sermons on Sunday morning in Sunday school. That's why we have small groups in the middle of the week where we're reading the Bible. We've got to learn it. You've got to know it. We have to be people of the book. So immersed in the whole story of the Bible that it becomes the story you get your identity from and you live your life out of. That's, that's one play. That's one piece of what it takes to live like a Christian. Second, we're told in verse 9, it's through what we have received. Now here, Paul is talking about the Christian tradition of worship and the creeds. The things we've received. This tradition of getting together on the first day of the week to sing songs of praise to God, to pray prayers, to listen to scripture, to be taught scripture, to come to the Lord's table. This is a tradition we've received. It's a tradition that's been handed down. And look, if you, if you deny the Bible and you're not a student of the Bible and you're passive about the Bible, you're just going to kind of pick up whatever you pick up here and there just by being a passive person who comes to church, you're not going to make it. You're not going to really live like a Christian. And if, if you're just passive about things like worship, you're not going to make it about the doctrine we've received. This book can mean a lot of things, but... The true interpretation of the book is what the church says it means. It's what we've received. It's the story the church has been telling for millennia that this book is telling us. That's what we've received. You have to become somebody who's immersed in the traditions. Number three, he writes, that you, that's not enough. It's not enough to be a student of the Bible and a participant in the traditions. You also have to have mentors. What you have heard and seen in us, he says. You have to actually see the Christian life lived out in real people, in real time. And then you have to imitate them. You have to find somebody. Every one of us, none of us are too old. All of us have to find somebody that we get so close to their life that we make them an example that we imitate. You can't leave Christianity to chance. 
You, have, you can't imagine that people like Paul and Luke and Silas and Epaphroditus and Timothy and, and, and um, Yodia and Syntyche, you can't imagine that they're the special cases and you're just an ordinary person. So you get to kind of just coast. No, you have to go for it. You have to go for scripture to learn it. You have to go for being in a church and you have to find mentors. A missionary church will both look outward and thank God for all of his goodness and that's all around us and will look inward to the gospel and to those who model it so that they can find an actual way of living. And if we don't do this, we will not have a missionary encounter with our culture. So on the one hand, look at it this way. On the one hand, to be a missionary church means we are gracious and non-coercive and loving and kind and gentle and respectful and vulnerable and willing to suffer and willing to forgive. To be a missionary church, we, we have to be able of faithfully identifying the good in other faiths. And we should passionately defend the right of the Muslim to be a Muslim and to worship in the, in, according to Islam. And we have to be willing to defend the rights of the atheist. We have to be willing to defend the rights. Look, we have to be generously accepting of others because Jesus was generously accepting of us. And at the same time, we can boldly not take delight in the way other faiths are directing people away from God. And so while we should never force anyone to follow Jesus, we cannot and will not deny that we want everyone to know Jesus. Now, look, look what happens if we hold these two things in tension. If we're really good at enjoying all the goodness that's out there, and simultaneously really deeply committed to living like Christians, to learning from Scripture how to live, and from the church, and from mentors. Notice if we hold these two things in balance, the end of verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. Now once again, here we have one of the major themes of the Bible. And it's that we will not end up going to be with God. But the whole goal of the Bible, that is true, but that's not the end. The goal of the Bible is that God will come and make his home here on this earth. The final scene of the Bible declares that the dwelling place of God is with humans. And God being with his people is where the whole story is moving. And here's how this all fits together. The church... When the church holds these two things in tension, learning to celebrate God's goodness wherever it's found and learning to live like Christians, when the church holds this in tension, the church becomes the pilot project for where the whole thing's going to end because the church becomes a living temple. God is in our midst. That's where the whole thing is going. The whole thing is going. So when we learn to think about things like verse 8 says and to practice things like verse 9 says, we become a little appetizer to the world, a living temple. God in our midst making us 
a sign of where this whole thing is headed. The hope of the world. Let's pray.